Uh, why don't I pray for God's help as we come to uh, this passage together? Let me pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. I pray that you would be speaking to us through it this morning by your Holy Spirit, that you would be helping us to understand it rightly, that you would be applying it to each of our hearts this morning, that we might be transformed by it. Amen. And I, w- I want you to imagine with me, as I begin, just picture it. It's 1939. Uh, you're on a boat. It's a smallish sort of boat, and you're in the English Channel. You're there because it's the start of World War II. You're on your way to fight on the front. But you can't think about that now because your smallish sort of boat is sort of sinking. There's a storm thrashing all around you. Can you imagine it? Huge waves, gale force winds, relentless sideways rain. It looks like the end might come for you before you even land in France, before you even get to the war. It might be quite difficult to picture yourself there, uh, difficult to imagine, but I wonder how you think you might react in a situation like that. You know yourself better than I do. Maybe you'd panic. Maybe you'd take your sort of army hat off and hopelessly start to try and bail some of the water. Maybe you'd dive into the sea and try and swim the 15 miles back to Dover. Maybe you're the sort of person who'd just curl up into a ball and do nothing, frozen, maybe terrified. Maybe you're the sort of person in denial, pretending that it's all going to be okay, even though it clearly isn't. it's It's a pretty stark illustration, that. Uh, But here's why I use it, because the truth is, I think life can often feel a bit like that. Like a bit of a storm, right? The question I want us to be asking is, how do we respond in the storms of life? Because if we're honest, the world that we live in is a total mess, isn't it? Just think about some of the stuff that Kenny was just praying about. Just look at the news and and see there's war, there's protest, there's violence, lots of stuff like that on the news. In fact, I'm sure we don't even need to look at the news to know this, because in our own lives, buckets of injustice, isn't there? And you may be able to think of a particular person in your life or your past, or a group of people, or a specific injustice that has made your mess. So aren't we all asking, really, whether we believe in God or not, aren't we asking, what is he doing in all of this? If your God is supposed to be loving and good and just and powerful, then why does the world and why does my life feel like such a mess? That's really our question this morning. Really, over the next three Sundays, I'll be with you. We're going to be in Habakkuk. And this is the question, how do we have faith? even in that mess. And so let's dive into our text for today. Uh, Just as we get our bearings, have a look again at verse 1 with me. This is the oracle that that, that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Uh, So what are we coming to here? Uh, What is this book? Well, that word translated oracle, or you might just have prophecy, it really just means message or, or burden. This is the burden that God has placed on Habakkuk's heart. But it's quite unlike some of the more familiar prophetic books in this genre, because it's not addressed, notice, to a particular people. 
Instead, this book is like a conversation between Habakkuk and God. Habakkuk asks a question. That's really what we've read this morning. And next, next week we'll see, uh, sorry, he asks a question and, and God responds, which we've seen this morning. Next week we'll see he asks a second question and then God responds again. And then in the final chapter, in chapter three, Habakkuk responds uh, himself with this wonderful song. And we'll see that Habakkuk's questions are actually really specific. They're specific to the situation of a prophet in 7th century Judah. Uh, But his questions are also incredibly timeless. At their heart, I think we'll see that they're questions that we still ask today. So what what was Habakkuk's world like? Well, here's a bit of a potted history for you. Um, The the kingdom of Israel has been split into two. Northern kingdom Israel, southern kingdom Judah. Israel, the northern kingdom, has been conquered They've been taken off into exile by the the Assyrian Empire, massive crisis. And then for Judah, the southern southern kingdom, that was followed by a century of bad kings, idol worship and violence. Then along comes this king, Josiah. Uh, Josiah was a good king in a long line of evil kings. And under Josiah, there's something of a revival. The nation of Judah returns to the worship of the one true God. It's looking good, but then Josiah dies in battle. Uh, One of his sons replaces him, but only lasts a couple of months. And then his other son, Jehoiakim, becomes king. And Jehoiakim is awful. In fact, he reversed all the good that his father Josiah had done. There's a return to violence, a return to faithlessness. And, And it's in that sort of context that Habakkuk asks this question. It's the sort of violence and injustice and mess with the memory of a good king. He's a a faithful prophet calling out to God in a messy world. And in some ways, I think that being a Christian in Scotland today might feel a bit like being a prophet in Judah in the 7th century. Certainly it can feel, can't it, as though the church is slowly or maybe not so slowly dying easy to lament a decline in what we would call true Christian spirituality, to to look at the waning Christian influence in this country, to watch the powers of lawlessness and injustice. You know, I have to say that that virtually every uh, generation of Christian history has felt a, a bit like that. If you read any historical Christian biography, to be a Christian is to be a faithful minority in a messy world. But that is certainly true today, isn't it? We might feel a bit like Habakkuk as he asks his first question, calling out uh, into a a, a messy world. And it is a really honest question that Habakkuk asks. This is really our first point for this morning, an honest question. Have a look at verse 2. Here's his question. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence? And you will not save. Uh, it's, a, it's an honest question, but notice with me first, Habakkuk isn't doubting God's existence. He isn't doubting who God is. He calls him Lord. Uh, it's a name that points to all that God has done, raising up a people for himself, rescuing them out of slavery and Egypt, bringing them into the promised land. It's this God to whom he prays. And notice too, that he doesn't doubt that God is going to do something. It is God's timing, not his character, that Habakkuk questions here. 
He's desperate to see God's justice done. How long? And yet it seems no answer. He's been calling out about the violence of this King Jehoiakim. How long? See in verse 3, he describes the, the injustice, the wrongdoing, the destruction and violence and strife and conflict. And so he just honestly asks, how long? Aren't we asking the same question today? How long? God, what are you going to do about our messy world? But Habakkuk isn't denying that God is a God of justice. In fact, it's God's justice that Habakkuk is concerned with. See in verse 4, Habakkuk says the law is paralysed. That's the law given by God to help his people live wisely in the world, to help them understand what justice is. But under these kings, under Jehoiakim, under the, the wicked... The law is not allowed to function. In verse 4, justice never goes forth. Justice is perverted. Just like us, Habakkuk is on the boat. He's in the storm. The storms of injustice caused by the wicked rulers of his nation. It's worth saying at this stage that, that if you look around at the world that we live in, and if you see the injustice and it bothers you, and it should bother you, Right, as women continue to be trafficked into sex slavery, as war continues to rage, as vulnerable minorities all over the world are exploited and persecuted, if you see that this is the sort of world that we live in and it bothers you, if that's you but you don't believe in this God, then can I just gently ask this morning where you're getting your idea of justice from in the first place? Because without God... Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, puts it like this. It'll come on the screen. He says, in a world, uh, in a universe rather, of blind physical forces and genetic replications, in other words, a world without God, some people are going to get lucky and some people are going to get hurt. And we won't find any rhyme or reason to it. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is. And we dance to the music. What he's saying is that if there is no rhyme or reason and everything is by chance, well then, and, and there is no God. My question is, if that's true, then why do we all feel as though there should be justice? Why do we cry out for justice in the first place? Well, let me suggest that it is only because that that is the character of the God who created the universe in which we live. And especially in this country today, it is only because of the influence of his son, Jesus. It's only because of his influence that we believe what we do about justice in 21st century Scotland. If you're keen to think about that a bit more, grab me after, I'll hang around for a cup of coffee. I've got a great book recommendation for you. But for now, just know that what we believe in this country about justice, it it is rooted in the Christian faith. But for now, as we consider what to do in the midst of all this mess, I think we've got to learn from Habakkuk's question. A bit like uh, uh, being in a smallish ship in a storm, the temptation with this mess is twofold. Our first instinct might be to bury our head in the sand, to simply ignore the depths of the injustice, 
deny that the problem is really that bad, to keep on living our comfortable lives, refusing to actually get involved in the mess at all. That'd be like pretending that there is no storm or curling up in the hull of the ship terrified. On the other hand, we might do the opposite, right? We might be trying to fix it all ourselves. Our instinct might be to throw ourselves headfirst into every justice-fighting cause that we can get our teeth into. But doing so faithlessly, in prayerlessness, failing to recognize who God is, and failing to recognize what he has said about his justice, and so becoming self-reliant, believing, right, that we are capable of bringing justice on our own, that our ideas about what is just, is that they're the important thing. Do that and we very quickly get discouraged at our inability to have any real impact, like trying to bail water out of a ship in a storm with an army hat. And so instead this morning, let's learn from this honest prayer together, knowing who God is, knowing that he is a God who is perfectly just, a God who has displayed his character through the history of his people, who has promised ultimately to prove his justice finally. Would we know that this is who God is and plead with him? We've prayed it together. Your kingdom come that his justice would be done. We're going to return to this over the coming weeks, that his justice would be done ultimately and finally. But before we get there, let's have a look at at this surprising answer of justice that God gives Habakkuk. It's a surprising answer. See in verse 5. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. What's God going to do? Something so surprising that Habakkuk would be amazed that he'd scarcely believe it. And it's something coming from the nations. In verse 6, God is raising up the Chaldeans. Your translation might have the Babylonians, same people. And these guys, the, the Babylonians, their empire had already been and gone. A thousand years before Habakkuk's day, the Babylonian Empire was like the superpower. It had long since been squashed. But the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, apparently are going to rise up once more. And that would have been massively surprising to Habakkuk. Right? What about the Assyrian Empire? Remember the guys I was talking about at the start who had wiped out the northern kingdom? They were the big bad guys. God's saying that there's a new kid on the block. And indeed, as we read in verse 6, they are those who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. There's a certain inevitability about what is coming. Uh, They are dreaded and fearsome. Maybe you can imagine the, the, the feeling, seeing the gathering empire on the horizon, knowing that they're coming for your nation next. I wonder if that is what it might have felt like for the people of Ukraine. I suspect other Eastern European countries today feeling a little bit like this, the fear and dread. The imagery in these verses is terrifying. Have a a look at verse 8 with me. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour 
The Babylonians and their horses are compared to the most brutal predators. They're fast and fierce and ferocious. They advance in verse 9, all their faces forward, or in other translations, they advance like the desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. What grain of sand stands a chance against a great whipping wind? It's It's a picture of an army gathering up prisoners with ease. At kings, they scoff, and at rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress. In some ways, that imagery is even more brutal, right? That, that sort of foreboding laughter is terrifying. Maybe you can think of the bully in the play- playground, and the little kid finally stands up to him, and the bully just laughs. We all know what's coming next, as he just sort of swipes the kid aside, moving on to his next victim. Just as the Babylonian does, see in verse 11, they sweep past like the wind, and go on. This is what's coming, God says. It's brutal, it's terrifying, and it's inevitable. But the surprising thing, I think, is back in verse 6. Here's the real surprise. See, in verse 6, it is God who is raising them up. They're simply his instruments. They look like the enemy, but they're carrying out God's justice. That's surprising enough just as a plain fact, but much more than that, because notice in verse 7, I don't think it is in verse 7. It is in verse 7. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves, the second half of of verse 7. In other words, they come up with their own laws. They promote their own honour. And we begin to get a note of irony here, I think. If you look back in verse 4, In verse 4, the law is paralysed for God's people, the people of Judah. And now those that God is raising up to bring justice, well, they're lawless too. And just like the people of Judah, the people Habakkuk is complaining about, down in verse 9, the Babylonians come, they all come for violence. That's just the way that Judah was described. And worse than that, it is their own honour that they promote. If God's people are being judged for their faithlessness... Well, this people aren't interested in promoting God's honour at all. They promote their own. See at the end of verse 11, their own might is their God. They're totally self-reliant. Actually, this is a pretty unusual thing in the ancient world. In the ancient world, basically everyone has their own gods. Gods external to themselves, national gods and fertility gods and especially gods of war. But this people, the Babylonian people, they're they're so self-reliant, so self-absorbed that their own might is their God. Isn't that the ultimate idolatry? Not only the ultimate, but also the most universal, I think. To rely on our own efforts in life. It's so easy to fall into this, whether we're a Christian here or not, to be fundamentally self-reliant, even specifically Christianly self-reliant. Relying on my own good deeds or my devotion or my growth in whatever. But really that is self-idolatry. It is a denial of the God who created us. The God who seeks to save. And in all of this, see how the Babylonians are described. Essentially in verse 11, this is the verdict. They are guilty men. These people, the people that God is raising up to judge Judah, well, they're just as bad, if not worse, than Judah themselves. 
It's as though God is saying on your small boat in the midst of a storm, here's how I'm going to fix the mess. I'm going to send an even bigger storm. Isn't that a surprising justice? If justice is really to be done, well then surely these guys need to be judged too. I think that's the right question. And if you come back next week, you'll see that that is exactly the question that Habakkuk asks next. But for now, what do we do with the first half of chapter one? What do we do with this? We remain at sea, don't we? The storm, it rages. This is the world we live in. It's a mess. And how does this surprising answer, this surprising promise of justice help us to have faith in the mess today? There's maybe a temptation here to think about today's events and think about how they might be God's judgment, right? To think about the Babylonians and think, well, what's the equivalent right now? How COVID might have been that, how global warming might be that, or war in Ukraine and Russia, or riots in France and Belgium, whatever it is that's going on in the world, is that God judging his people? And and the book of Habakkuk it's not there to point to those events. Right? We're not supposed to draw straight lines from Old Testament prophecy to today like that. It's not what the Bible is encouraging us to do. Because we know that actually what, what Habakkuk is, is doing for us, we know that God used the Babylonians to judge his people like this. Right? God promises to do it here in Habakkuk and elsewhere in, in the prophecy He promises to do it, and then the Bible says that it happens as history, and then history, normal history, confirms that it happened. And so that does not mean that we can point to anything today and say this is definitely God's justice on a wicked people in fulfillment of what he's saying in Habakkuk chapter 1. It might be that that is what God is up to, but that's not what the Bible is telling us that that is what God is up to. And so we can't be confident and know that that's what it is. It's not the point of Bible prophecy. Instead, what Bible prophecy is supposed to do is to point us to an even greater surprising promise of justice. As we look at the messy world that we live in, and as we desire that justice would be done, I think one of the key questions for us to ask is, why is the world such a mess? Who makes the world messy? And as we answer that question, I think it leads to another question, which is, what would justice look like then? You might lay the blame at God's feet, right? If he's the creator and he made the rules and if he's all powerful, then surely the mess is his fault. If the rules are being broken, why wouldn't he do something about it? But I wonder this morning, could the blame lie elsewhere? Let me illustrate it like this, and I think this will be familiar to all of us. During the COVID pandemic, during lockdown, if I broke the rules, if I broke the rules, even just in some small way, some unessential travel to the beach for a barbecue with my friends, seven people gathered when it was only supposed to be six, who would be to blame in that situation? Are the government to blame for having made a stupid rule and failing to enforce it? Or am I to blame for having broken the rules? God created us with free will and the freedom to choose between right and wrong. We're not not robots, right? We're capable of making real decisions with profound consequences. Who then is to blame for the injustice in the world that we live in? 
And the Bible is really clear about that. I am and you are. The Bible teaches that God created a perfect world without injustice and that human rebellion against God is what has ruined it. And as our, as our relationship with our creator was broken and our relationships with each other and our relationship with the created world, that's really the mess that we live in, isn't it? And so in that sort of world, what would justice look like? Well, come back to Acts chapter 13 with me. You can look it up again if you want to, but it'll, it'll be on the screen. Um, in this passage, Paul is preaching to the Jews at the synagogue, and he retells Israel's story, how Israel was consistently unfaithful to her God. And ultimately, Paul shows how Jesus is the solution. This is how he concludes. Uh, we've read it already. Let me read it again. Let it be known to you, therefore... Brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Here is the surprising justice of God, right? For God's people, justice up to this point had been really simple. It was provided in the law, the law of Moses. God says, follow this law and justice will be complete. And even built into that law was the promise of forgiveness through sacrifice when they didn't stick to it. Uh, but that didn't really work because the people consistently didn't follow the law. We've seen that in Habakkuk already. The sacrifices had to be continually made. It wasn't a mistake that it didn't work. God hadn't given them a mistake. The whole point of that law was to point to this the surprising justice of God, that he would do it for us, the once and for all time sacrifice of Jesus. And notice that God uses a guilty people to carry out that justice. Just like the promise in Habakkuk, this is the surprising justice of the cross. As God comes down in the person of Jesus, as he's crucified, nailed to the cross, by who? He's nailed to a cross by the Romans. You think that description of the Babylonian Empire was bad. The Romans were an idolatrous and violent empire. An empire that the New Testament writers actually name Babylon. An empire the likes of which the world had never seen. And it is them who carry out God's justice by nailing Jesus to a cross. And in that moment, he took the guilt of the world on his shoulders. Why? Well, Paul puts it like this as he writes to the Roman church in, uh, in Romans chapter 3. He says, he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Why does Jesus go to the cross? It is so that all those who have faith in him, seeing that we are guilty, that we contribute to the mess of the world that we live in, that there is mess in our hearts. Faith in this mess is knowing that God is ultimately just in Jesus and knowing that justice has been satisfied in that moment on the cross by him, knowing that we have been justified in Jesus. That is a surprising justice. 
As Paul continues in Acts chapter 13, he actually quotes from, from Habakkuk, the astute among you will have noticed this. He says, I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if no one tells you. Paul says this is a surprising justice from God, so surprising that the Jews that Paul is talking to would hardly believe it. And this is where we've got to start for faith in the mess. It's not a complete answer, not yet. Luckily, we've got the next couple of weeks to unpack the rest of Habakkuk together. But this is a start. As we finish, let me tell you about about a man who was surprised uh, by the hope of God's justice. If I can, just conclude with this story about this man, William Thomas. William Thomas, uh, he was often known as Staffordshire Tom, and he was drunk as usual, uh, sat in his usual seat in the Working Men's Club in Aberavon in South Wales. Uh, Even the other regulars had learned to avoid him. His, His habit was to complain A lifetime in the mines, low wages, awful conditions. He was well acquainted with injustice. And when he got drunk, he was just very quick to share his opinions about the mess of his life. You know the sort of person, the mess of the world around him. And as you might imagine, uh, he was sat there staring into his pint, feeling lonely and hopeless and depressed. There were lots of little groups around him, just threes and fours at tables, chatting away. And he couldn't help but overhear one conversation. He caught the words preacher and church, and he was just about ready to switch off when he heard this sentence. Yes, the man said no one was hopeless. He said there was hope for everybody. Bill's mouth fell open, his eyes bulged wide. He thought to himself, well, if there's hope for everybody, maybe there's hope for me. He went to that church and he discovered the surprising hope in the faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ, hope in this surprising justice. Let me take you back to that smallish boat in the storm. Because whatever your instinct, whether it is to get to work or to bury your head, Habakkuk, the book of Habakkuk would encourage us knowing who God is, knowing that he is a God of justice, he would encourage us actually to ask that question, honestly, how long? But he'd also encourage us to see God's wonderful promise, his surprising promise of justice. It might and it should leave us with questions about ultimate and eternal justice. We'll come back to that next week. But for now, let's see the surprising justice of the cross, where our forgiveness has been won, where justice has been done. Let's start there, shall we? Acknowledging that even in the mess, acknowledging together that we desperately need the hope of this faith. In all of the mess of the world, in all of the mess that we have caused, and in all of the mess in our own hearts, there is hope. Hope in the faith of the gospel. Hope in Jesus. Even in all of our questions, let's start there. Uh, Let me pray to to close. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we cry out with Habakkuk, how long? We look at the injustice of the world we live in and we ask, Lord, that your justice would be done. 
And in the meantime, would you comfort us in this mess? Would you be with us by your Holy Spirit? And as we consider the ways that we have contributed to injustice, Lord, we thank you so much for what you've done for us in Jesus. Being both just and the justifier, that we might be justified. Lord, we can barely comprehend the wonder of that truth. Help us to cling to it. Help us to have hope in the faith of the gospel this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.